It is not philanthropists who are going to fix this. It is not intermediaries that are going to fix this. It is proximate leaders who put their minds and their bodies on the lines in communities every day. They are the pathway to justice, and we've got to give them the resources that they need to do it. It is not preordained that we're going to be okay. We've got to make it okay, and it's our work to do together. At a time when our society can feel more divided than ever, join us as we explore what it means to adapt and evolve together. Welcome to Say More. I'm Tulane Montgomery, CEO of New Profit and your host. I'm so happy that you've joined me again. We're going to have another fun and thought-provoking conversation. This is a good one, y'all. This time with the trailblazer, who is a mentor, big sis, frankly, icon to me and many, many others. I'm talking about none other than the brilliant, beautiful, steady drumbeat for justice that is Cheryl Dorsey. As the president of Echoing Green, Cheryl provides social innovators across the globe with funding, support, and most importantly, a community that they can count on. You know how folks will often say different versions of never meet your heroes. You know, the implication is that people are never quite as good in person up close as they seem to be from far away when you're admiring their achievements or their ideas. And let me tell you, (laughs) Cheryl is one of the many examples I'm blessed to have in my life. But that's just not what it is. She is a hero of mine and walks the talk and is exactly who she appears to be in the very best of ways. So I'm excited for y'all to be part of this conversation today. I chatted with Cheryl on May 25th, which happened to be the third anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. Now, folks who know me know I don't tend to believe in coincidences. And it turned out that while it was a day for reflection and grieving, it was actually the perfect opportunity for Cheryl and I to reflect on promises made, kept, and broken in this country. In our conversation, Cheryl and I talk about how there's good news and good work to be done. And what I mean is, while we see more folks represented in leadership positions and more of the insights of proximate leaders represented and solutions that are getting funding, we still see some real barriers to entry. And we know that there's a lot that remains to be done. Sometimes it's inequitable access to capital. Sometimes it's more barriers to growth and development for leadership. But rest assured, Cheryl and I did not have a grim conversation and we spent no time wringing our hands. We really did discuss how these very leaders are overcoming the odds, building new systems, and paving the way toward a better America. I'm really happy about having time with you, always, like just because you have been a steady drumbeat of the kind of leadership that we need in this world. And I'm so glad that you made some time to join us today. Very excited to be here with you, my friend. This is great. Awesome. 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 So so let's just a little bit of icebreaker. And one thing I love to ask friends who join me on the Say More Space is, what is something that just cracked you up recently? Like, think about the last time you laughed out loud. And, you know, if you could share it with us, <laughs> we'd love to hear. What's something that cracked you up recently, Cheryl? My goodness. Uh, it's so silly, Tulane. But, you know, I was just texting uh, with a group, one group of girlfriends, and they're so silly. But I don't know. You're probably way more cultured than I am, Tulane. But I don't know if you ever saw the movie Magic Mike, yes. which I enjoy, right? And there's a scene where whatever the actor is, the young man, oh, Channing Tatum yes. is like doing one of his little sexy dances to the genuine song. Yes, Pony. Yes. And my <laughs> girl said, oh my God, my friend Janice, I'm going to call her out, set a video of a bear in the woods, like standing up on its hind legs, scratching its back against a tree, but it literally looked like 
the stripper moves of <laughs> from Magic Mike and some silly Twitter genius put that to the music to genuine. And I was like, okay, we're through. We're through. We laughed. <laughs> I'm still laughing. I'm still laughing too late. I might have to text it to you because it's ridiculous but hilarious. Please do. Please send it to me. Please do. I love it. There's something about the pony and it's genuine's yeah. version. I'm sorry. They're doing all these remakes and stuff. I need them to leave it alone. Let Thank a classic you. be a classic. Thank you. Classic. <laughs> Old school. You just keep it. Original yes. 100, all good. But <laughs> Come on, come on. That song ages well. I'm sorry. So I love it. Even in the animal kingdom, that song carries weight. I love it. <laughs> Shout out to Genuine. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I was trying to think about this for myself as well. And, you know, one thing I had to notice was, oh, it took me a couple of beats to reflect on that, right? And so, like, I tried to make laughter, you know, a practice, you know? Yes. And so I love asking this question because it also gives me the opportunity to think when did you last laugh out loud you know right. and I'm going to confess to you like my last laughing out loud to my belly hurt moment was wonderful but also has some you know uh, conflict to it and what I mean is mm. that I was watching uh, some of my favorite Bernie Mac mm. right mm. and you know Bernie Mac I love Bernie Mac cracks me up well I rewatched one of his you know stand-ups and I was just hollering. And then I was thinking, oh, he's gone to this. He's gone. He's gone. He's gone. So one. there was grieving yeah. that he's gone. Mm -hmm. Right. Far too soon. Yeah. I was also realizing that about 85 percent of what he was saying, if he said today, would have been perceived as problematic. Wow. Right. Wow. If yeah. you think about it, yeah. right? If you think yeah. about some of the content. And I'm like, well, Bernie Mac wasn't that long ago. And it is really something to notice that the sort of public appetite for consumption of comedy has changed a lot. Oh, and yeah. it just made me reflect on that a little bit. And it was still funny to me. And I laughed unapologetically. Yeah. And if he came out now with that content, then I think that the reception to him would have been different. Than it so was interesting. Mm -hmm. I just I find, you know, comedians have a particular role in society from Lenny Bruce to Richard mm -hmm. Pryor yeah. to uh, Dave Chappelle. Mm -hmm. A lot of what they do is speak truth to power in politically incorrect or mm -hmm. uncomfortable ways. I think they have an essential and central role. Yeah. And I believe deeply in free speech, even that speech which I disagree vehemently with mm -hmm. but there's got to be a space to it but I, you know especially black comedians and, and Bernie Mac you know kings of comedy was everything right everything. kings of comedy everything. and they painted you know life in black America the good the beautiful the bad and the ugly and it mattered that testimony mattered yeah but you make an interesting point Tulane and you wonder right how would he be navigating these spaces today right Right. It's true. I mean, I'll never forget. There's so much about Kings of Comedy I'll never forget. But one that to this day holds true, Cedric the Entertainer's bit about, uh, <laughs> God, there's so much, but one about like finding somebody in your seats if you go to a show. <laughs> I wish somebody would, you know? <laughs> like, there's truth in that. Like, I wish you would. I went to see Jill Scott the other day um, here at uh, the DMV. And, uh, you know, there was somebody in my seat, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that there was that moment of, you know, you're going to have to figure this out. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> it's truth to it. Absolutely. And the whole piece that he did about when, you know, when black folks, when we see people running <laughs> and how <laughs> you don't have to explain what it is, we're just going to get running immediately. <laughs> and it's true. It's it just is true. true. It is so, true. you know, uh, yeah. Anyway, so comedy. I love it. I love Well, thank you for sharing that. And uh, please do send me the I bear will. dancing to genuine. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so I want to make sure that listeners, I mean, you know, your title is president, but your impact is icon mm -hmm. in terms of how many people know who you are and respect who you are and the work that you do. But I do want to just make sure that we introduce listeners who may not be familiar with kind of the high level work of Echoing Green. So just talk a little bit, Cheryl, about, you know, what does Echoing Green do? What's the mission of that organization? Mm. So Echoing Green was founded 35 years ago by the senior leadership of a private equity firm called General Atlantic. 
And it was really one of the earliest founded funders of social entrepreneurs. And again, you all obviously know this, Tulane, because we're longtime colleagues. But in the social innovation ecosystem, we sort of all sit at different stages of this broader field and movement. And Equine Green really has sort of carved out a space as an angel investor in the social impact sector. So our job really is to identify at the earliest stages some of the best and most promising early stage social entrepreneurs working around the world, providing them with seed capital and support and embedding them in a larger community of social innovators as they seek to grow their ideas and their organizations. And really proud to be part of this larger ecosystem with leaders like you and organizations like New Profit and Ashoka and Skoll and Schwab. And it's an organization that continues to do really good and important work all these years later. Cheryl has been part of the Echoing Green community for a long time. In fact, she was an Echoing Green Fellow in 1992. After graduating, she became part of their board and joined a staff in the early 2000s. Echoing Green works globally, mm-hmm. right? So you, your work and the leaders you support are not exclusively U.S.-based or U.S.-focused. And so I, that means that one of the realities of your work is that you're in relationship and partnership with people all over the world. Oppression is a global phenomenon, my dear. It is everywhere. <laughs> it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And so, you know, there's a lot to that, right? I was talking with um, Wendy Kopf with uh, Teach for All and asking her, you know, where was she noticing universal, universally relevant tools yeah. and what were the sort of global lessons? And oppression is everywhere is one that she also speaks about, which can be really heartbreaking, right? Yeah. And yet... There's innovation and solutions and camaraderie and transformation is also everywhere. So I wonder, Cheryl, when you think with the global view, what are you seeing outside of the U.S. in terms of social innovation that you wish you were seeing more of in the U.S.? Hmm. Yeah, no, and there have been some interesting conversations over the years around sort of reverse innovation, right? And Mm -hmm. sort of how do you decenter the United States in this work, recognizing mm-hmm. that, in fact, social innovation is alive and well across the globe. You know, every year we get thousands of applications from 160 plus countries all over the world. So it is just percolating everywhere and anywhere these structural inequities exist. So I think that's exciting. And I would say a couple of things. One is that I think historically societies have been based on hierarchy and caste. All, mm. all shout out and credit to Isabel Wilkerson, right? So mm-hmm. um, the notion that, you know, we had a hierarchical infrastructure and structure and we thought we needed only the talents and abilities of a few, we're starting to realize and recognize how wrongheaded that view of the world, that hierarchical view was and is, and recognizing that even though talent is equally distributed, opportunity is not. Mm -hmm. So how do you create sort of a more open field where a thousand flowers can bloom, a million flowers can bloom, allowing folks to thrive regardless of their beginnings? And I, that is nice to see. I would also say that in communities all over the world that are far less resourced in some ways financially than the United States, People have been very crafty and smart about social innovation. Mm. They figured out strategies for scale, which have been phenomenally effective. Mm -hmm. They have figured out really interesting opportunities around partnership and collaboration, Mm -hmm. which does not happen enough yet, I think, in the United States, right? Um, I think there's sort of a natural tendency in the U.S., hyper-individualistic, hyper-competitive, not recognizing the power of the collective, um, then I think some of that wisdom from other cultures certainly matters. Mm-hmm. And then I think also you've got an explosion of young people around the world. Just so you know, we get so many applications from the continent of Africa. The talent from the continent is dazzling. I yes. mean, these young people are phenomenal. And they're coming of age where they want to move into leadership positions where they have opportunity and they're working in systems that don't work well enough for them. So they are reimagining them and reinterpreting them in really interesting, phenomenal ways at warp speed Mm. because it has to work for them more quickly. So lots of really interesting learnings happening outside of the United States, thankfully. (laughs) 
Since its launch 35 years ago, Echoing Green has worked with more than 500 impact entrepreneurs from over 85 countries. You're part of this network, this movement of leaders across the globe. And, you know, we are in this, you know, Thomas Friedman talks about the age of acceleration, right? Like, you know, as a species, we have never lived through this much change at this speed, at this scale. Like yes. every dimension of our life is being touched by change in some meaningful way. And uh, we're even learning what kind of impact that has on these brains of ours, right? So what kind of leadership do you, Cheryl, believe is needed for a time such as this? Like, and you, you've seen leaders from around the globe in different contexts, what are the kind of leadership traits and capabilities that you believe we need right now? Well, um, I do think that folks who have a trenchant analysis of the status quo is really required, right? And, mm -hmm. and in some ways, I don't necessarily care where you come down on it. Look, I'm very progressive. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, when I look at the status quo, I just don't mm -hmm. think it works for enough of us. And I think it is insidious in many ways for folks of color, for women, for people without financial resources. I think it's just vicious in mm -hmm. preventing folks from garnering the kinds of opportunities they need to thrive. But you got to understand it, right? And again, mm -hmm. if you maybe are on a different side of the ideological spectrum than I, at least name it yeah. and be honest about it and say, well, I actually like status quo because mm -hmm. I like hierarchy and it just allows it to work for folks like, like me and a select few. And then at least we can have a conversation mm. and a healthy argument um, and battle about what we're going to do about it. So yes. understanding, having an analysis that is clinical and smart mm. and deep. Mm. It has nothing to do with pedigree and academic training, but you you got to know it and you got to see it and you have to understand it. And lived mm. experience is often some of the best training to truly understand the real impact of the status quo. I also think having a level of grace, because this work is really hard, yes. and being able to talk across distance and difference is important. Mm -hmm. And if we're ever going to get to a multiracial, multicultural world and society, being able to talk across difference, yeah. don't always have to agree, but you got to be able to talk across difference, mm -hmm. I think is really important. Resilience, mm -hmm. super important. Duckworth's research about grit, determination, resilience, I think really is quite important because failure and setbacks are so much a part of this transformational work. Absolutely. And I think that's important. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, it's the 20th anniversary of Robin Kelly's book, The Radical Imagination, right? Mm. And sort of this space. And I'm, you know, am I using the right word to land? You know, I don't necessarily say it's creativity, but mm. the sense of imagination, wonder, and the ability to dream, you know, yes. book, freedom dreams, the black radical imagination. Cheryl is referring to a book that analyzes the journeys of African-Americans like C.L.R. James and Malcolm X. The book examines how these leaders use their power of imagination to fuel their work and their vision for a transformed society. Sometimes you've got to be able to see what is not in front of you and that you know you will actually never achieve but you're still going to dream of it anyway and continue to walk through the world because yes. you think the dream is worth fighting for. Yes, yes. Well, that, you know, yes, that radical imagination. And, you know, I'm a bit of an etymology geek. I love to look up the root of words. And the word radical is a fascinating one because mm -hmm. it's been co-opted to imply fringe. You know, yeah. radical is, is yes. we associate the word radical with fringe. Yes. But the truth That's is right. that the root of the word radical is about the root it's about radical is about the root of the thing. So that. radical thinking, radical ideas are about ideas that get to the root of the issue or the system, not fringe. It's not about fringe at all. It has nothing to do with fringe. So when you talk about radical imagination, I hear that as like imagination that can get to the root of the thing, can uproot it and re reimagine it. And, you know, there's something I was watching uh, some clip around uh, this idea of being uninterrupted. Like, who would you be if you wow. were uninterrupted, right? How would you walk into rooms? Mm -hmm. What kind of ideas would you dream up? What sort of relationships would you have with others and with yourself? 
if you were uninterrupted. And I think that this idea of needing to create systems, schools, companies, communities that enable us to be uninterrupted is really powerful and compelling to me. You know, when I you think love about that, Tulane. So, you know, this is all really powerful stuff. And I think one of the ways that we have all been kind of hoodwinked and bamboozled, right, (laughs) to quote Malcolm, is to talk about these kinds of issues, the being uninterrupted, the imagination as soft. You know, I'm using air quotes for folks who can't see me. You know, this idea that if you focus on creating relationships and spaces that invite people to imagine and to connect with one another and to tell their truth that you're not doing rigorous work. And I just wanted to just lift that notion up and just test it with you. You know, as somebody who has taken on some of the most complex, persistent challenges that our world has to offer, how do you see the importance of relationship building, healing, these things that are often called soft in our space? Look, I think that is such an important point, Tulane. And when you sort of look at the history of civil society, of philanthropy, and sort of gone through these different chapters from sort of an altruistic beginning that came from a religious tradition and then moved into a more organized sort of charitable civil society space and then kind of moved into sort of a scientific, hard facts, data-driven, evidence-based space, which in some ways is good because accountability matters. How do you measure? Are you having progress? Mm -hmm. But it sort of crowded out these conversations that were more relational, right? That mm-hmm. were about, you know, love, that are about sort of healing and providing space for um, well-being and growth. And I remember, my gosh, this has got to be now close to 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I was at a funder briefing and, you know, I sort of talked about the role of love in the work of Echoing Green. And I was, you know, chastised mm-hmm. by someone in the room. Mm-hmm. saying that that was inappropriate language and it didn't make sense for us when we were tackling these tough problems to bring that sort of perspective into the room. I disagreed then and I continue to disagree and I think yes. it's becoming a safer um, and more hospitable space to talk about the role of love and relationships, yeah. which is the centrality of this work. And, you know, look, I think another reason that I continue to stay at Echoing Green is you know, the hypothesis, the test case was, you know, could you actually build a community by for and of social entrepreneurs mm-hmm. that revolved around love and commitment and relationship? And that's sort of the journey uh, we've been on. Mm-hmm. And I think we are proving out the hypothesis. It has been a, a difficult one to fund and support. But yeah, I think there's something incredibly powerful and power building about this relational approach to doing this work. Today, more people have come to acknowledge how essential love is in philanthropic work. It's not uncommon to hear people talk about love and abundance mindset in the same sentence where they talk about philanthropy and impact. It wasn't always that way. But this value and this language doesn't always match with our actual investments. After George Floyd's murder, many promises to end racial and economic disparities were made. You all may recall, 50 public companies collectively committed to at least $49.5 billion to address racial inequality, though some estimates put that number at closer to $70 billion. But 14 months after George Floyd's murder, that's the most recent data point we can reasonably track, 37 of the 50 largest companies dispersed only $1.7 billion of the nearly $50 billion pledged. So we don't have the best track record of dispersing promised dollars. We're recording this podcast on the third anniversary of the murder of Mr. Floyd. That's right. And I was sharing with some of my colleagues that I was a little down this morning, didn't lead any newscast that I was watching, wasn't on the front pages of any of the newspapers that I passed by today. But that doesn't mean that many of us have forgotten, you know, I was sharing that, you know, tonight in Minneapolis, just a few hours from now, there will be a Rise and Remember Festival to honor Mr. Floyd as it should be. Mm -hmm. And a reminder that our work to never forget what happened and what significance that horrific moment called us to do as a people 
the work continues, right? And you're mm-hmm. right. I mean, there was an outpouring of philanthropy, not just after Mr. Floyd was murdered, but during the pandemic when so many communities of color and um, low-income, low-resource communities were being impacted. And you're right, we started to see some backsliding. And, you know, both New Profit and Equine Green have done, I think, really important research to try to codify and name <laughs> the, the the capital disparity confronting nonprofits led by folks of color. So I do think you can't fix what you can't measure. And I appreciate the work of our organizations beginning to quantify those capital gaps because it then allows us to do something about it. I think where we are in this moment is there is a lot of money, philanthropic money, Tulane sitting on the sidelines. Yeah. Even though it seems that there are eye-popping amounts of capital moving into the sector, um, mostly from ultra high net worth individuals. And it is a lot. It is a fraction of what is available and what could be deployed against some of the greatest crises of our time. Yes. Racial inequities, economic disparities, the climate crisis. And then the question becomes, how do we move some of that money off the sidelines? And if you do move it, how do you ensure it gets into the hands of Black-led uh, nonprofits or nonprofits led by proximate leaders. Yes. And that that will only be fixed and solved through an ecosystem approach, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to have philanthropists entrusting relationships, back to your point, and conversations with nonprofits. You've got to gin up sort of the capacity building capability of organizations like Echoing Green and New Profit and others to ensure the readiness of these nonprofits who are leaderful, who have the trust of their communities, yeah. but don't have the infrastructure and capacity to absorb the resources that would be required to help them scale and do their work. Mm-hmm. So that's going to require, you know, both an organizational investment, but also an ecosystem investment. And to be serious about it, we've got to sort of link arms and jump together to begin to do the work. It's the only way it's going to happen. An ecosystem approach requires proximate leaders, especially folks from underrepresented communities, to communicate with one another and proactively support each other's work. This notion of ecosystem in part relates to who are the actors in a particular space, in the social impact space. Uh And far too long, the work, I think, was fragmented balkanized and isolated, right? So you had people working, but working at cross purposes or not talking to one another, lack of coordination, lack of collaboration. And in many ways, it's sort of a collective impact play for the sector. Mm -hmm. So actually, what would it look like for us to work in concert, right? Yes. And look, you know, special shout out to groups like New Profit and Echoing Green, and other intermediaries that are, I think, really powerful pathways for greater impact. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you you think about what we do in the world, Tulane, and why we are so important. We do coordinating activity, right? That's super Mm -hmm. important. We allow for pooled giving and coordination that, if done well, can really drive greater impact. Mm -hmm. We pair funding with really important technical support so that the sum of the parts is greater, Mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. than the constituent elements. And then it's a building of deep knowledge and expertise that can then be replicated, shared, and it's sort of a flywheel created Mm -hmm. to accelerate the progress of the groups with whom we work. And if you've got an ecosystem humming working and being directed in a particular way, yeah. boy, is that a surefire path to greater impact, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things that I know you work on and think about a lot, as do I, is that, you know, with all that we are doing at our respective institutions and just as human beings, there's so much more to be done. Right. You know, and for any, you know, person who's listening to this, who has had, you know, a powerful experience of partnership with 
Echoing Green or with New Profit, there probably is at least one person who is saying, I don't even know how to get in front of those people. Yeah. You know, how do I get access? It feels like a mystery to me. Right. And so just talk a little bit, Cheryl, and I'm happy to share what we're trying to do as well. How do you continue to push the sort of gateway of access for Echoing Green? Because even though we're doing so much more than historically we did, there's still so much more to do. How do you continue to push so that access is expanded and not narrowed over time? It's a, another really important question, Tulane. And I will say that it does remind you how small we are in this really big universe, right? And we're just a drop. We're just a tiny little drop. Right. There's only so much we can do, but you do it with grace Mm-hmm. and with excellence, and you do your part. So, yeah. you know, for us, having a completely open application process, um, that as a, a colleague said, is we hope the most generous in the world. We don't care where you come from. You can send us an email, or if you can't send us an email, just yeah. put something in the mail uh-huh. or figure out a way to get to us, right? I've read applications from incarcerated folks and are their applications come on loosely paper written in pencil. Yeah. Some of the most beautiful, thoughtful applications I've ever read. And we'll 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 honor that and we'll look at that. So getting thousands of submissions a year where people share their hopes and dreams, that's part of it. Being completely open and being generous, recognizing that people were vulnerable to share that. So we owe them something. Mm. I also think that, you know, again, I'm talking to you as we just finished up four days of virtual interviews for our next cohort of fellows. And it was 48 finalists from 19 countries. And not all of them are going to be part of our community. We're only going to select 20 new fellows for this class. But we also spent the last couple of weeks hosting community days Mm. where we just brought in alums, staff, community members, just to come talk to these folks and to begin to knit them together. Mm-hmm. And even if we don't have the privilege of working with them as fellows, we hope they take away something that allows yes. their organizations to have a greater chance to thrive, that they've now been connected to one another. So really being intentional about that work of all the people we get to interface with, and then it becomes sort of an echo effect, right? So yes. we've now moved upstream where We've devoted some resources to working now on eight HBCU campuses around the country saying, you know, we need more strong leaders of color in the fight for justice and change. For listeners who don't know, HBCU stands for Historically Black Colleges and Universities. HBCUs have played and continue to play an essential role in American higher education. In fact, HBCUs arguably play a critical role in the formation of American civic society. So many of our great leaders, elected officials, philosophers, creatives, organizers, you name it, many of them have been educated and shored up in HBCUs. Now, HBCUs were started in this country shortly after the Civil War to provide a place where Black Americans could pursue higher education at a time when the nation still endorsed racial segregation. I'm a kid of two HBCU grads. My parents, shout out to Morgan State University, uh, where my parents graduated from. And my mom also is an AU Atlanta Clark graduate. We spend a lot of time working with thousands of young folks on HBCU campuses, exposing them to the principles and practices of social innovation, using our limited resources just to provide a level of exposure Mm -hmm. to young folks, most of whom will never start a social enterprise. But if they feel like they've they have a better understanding of how to interrogate the status quo, Mm. how they need to think about their own leadership journey, that matters a lot. I love all of that. And, you know, even in listening to you, Cheryl, it's clear that none of us arrive right like at this beautiful, perfectly utopian, equitable, inclusive place. I talk a lot um, about American evolution, you know, that it's time for an American evolution, that we evolve our relationships, our beliefs, our systems, and that we're due for that. And so I wonder, uh, when I say American evolution, what does an evolved America look like to you? You know, when I say that, if we get the potential and ideal and promise of this experiment right, you know, what would it look like to you, Cheryl? Oof. That is a hard one. I'm I am not necessarily Tulane in in the best headspace. Okay. When I think we all are witnessing the rise of sort of a white nationalist wave 
that is dangerous to so many of us who have been mm-hmm. othered for so long. I, mm-hmm. I'm worried about it. And yeah. when there has been a deliberate and proud effort around erasure of history um, yeah. and voices, and I don't quite, I can't quite tell how you think we are going to get to where we're going if we don't understand where we've come from. I, yeah. I truly don't understand it. And, um, you know, I remember many years ago, I don't know if you were too young, but, you know, Henry Hampton's Eyes on the Prize, just sort of the seminal civil rights documentary. And um, sort of the first time I had been exposed to some old grainy black and white video. And it was sort of, you know, the traditional footage of sort of the fire hoses being turned on mm-hmm. young students like John Lewis, the dogs being unleashed, and the tape of a, the, you know, Lori Pritchard, notorious a segregationist sheriff from Albany, Georgia, mm-hmm. sort of looking in the camera. And they somebody's asking, well, like, how, how could you do it? And he said, you know, it's, it's mind over matter. I don't mind because they don't matter. And I just said, <laughs> it was so helpful. And I was like, oh, I get it. I get it now. I understand where I fit in this American tableau. Mm. They don't mind because we don't matter, right? Mm. And until we matter, Mm. until we're seen, until we're valued, until there's beauty in sort of the diversity and the difference, Tulane, we're we're never going to get there. Yeah, We're never going to get there. You know, the the cop who had his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 40 and just looking with insouciance at the camera. Hmm. He didn't mind because Mr. Floyd didn't matter. He didn't right. matter. Right. And there has to be a seat at the table for all of us. And it requires healing. It requires a recognition hmm. of the deep hurts that were fundamental to the founding of this country. Yes. And until we're ready to do that, Tulane, and I'm not sure we are, hmm. I'm not sure we are, but that's why I appreciate next generation leadership because mm. some of the sentiment, some of the weight, some of the disappointment that, you know, um, has settled into people my age mm. makes it harder for us to sprint because we've just taken the blows over the years and it just gets yeah. harder to yeah. believe that yeah. it's possible. But again, I, I have great faith in leaders of your generation and those coming behind you that, that you will continue with that radical imagination and yes. that you will see see what's possible but i think we're in a tough moment i just do we are yeah next i got to ask cheryl some questions coming from you the say more community now if you'd like to become part of future episodes and i hope you will just follow me on instagram linkedin or the platform formerly known as twitter at tulane montgomery there you'll get the chance to be in conversation with upcoming Say More guests, and I guarantee you these are folks that you would love to be in conversation with who welcome the opportunity to be in dialogue with you. Okay, we have a question from our friend Jeff Livingston. <laughs> so shout out to Jeff. Um, and he, his question is, if you were 21 years old and just graduated this week, what would you be doing and why? Well, I do say I am incredibly impressed with young people who came out of the womb as sort of digital natives, right? So they have been exposed to technology or are facile in a way that I will never be with technology. So really a world at their fingertips, right? And it has allowed them in every corner of the world to educate themselves, to deepen and express their creativity in ways that is interesting, profound, Mm -hmm. provocative, that is pushing the needle on all things cultural. So I do think if I had to do it all over again, I think I would probably spend some time learning, you know, sort of a self-learning journey. You know, I was, I just uh, finished uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, Mm -hmm. the, the book he wrote for his son, Between the World and Me. It's just a beautifully rendered book. And sort of his journey as, again, a lifelong learner who spent more time in his head being self-taught, being on a journey of exploration Mm. um, that created this extraordinary mind and public intellectual um, on his own terms, right? So I think I was um, probably 
you know, involved in far too many formal channels of learning and career when the world was big and interesting and open to me as an oyster that as a little black girl from Baltimore, I didn't understand how to navigate. Um, (laughs) And I I think if I had to do it all over again, I I would have bum rushed stuff at 21 in a way um, that I, you know, I couldn't have imagined almost 40 years ago. So different world, different time, you know? Yeah, that's I love that question. And so you actually touched on this just follow up question is how do we ensure that today's leaders of color are at the center of this AI revolution, which is a question I know Jeff is passionate about and I am, too. And it feels like such a mystery to me in some ways. I think I've seen too many apocalyptic films, (laughs) you know, so I get all kinds of, you know, OG nervous about it, you know. But um. You know, do you have thoughts on that? I'm still building my perspective, honestly. But do you have thoughts? Are there things you're thinking about or working on, Cheryl, around ensuring that folks of color are part of building this new world that's AI generated? Yeah, I, you know, and again, I find this incredibly fascinating. And, you know, Echoing Green has always been really interesting to me because we're we're usually the canary in the coal mine. You know, mm-hmm. we get so, again, we get thousands of applications every year we usually start to get early um, detection signals of what's happening. So no surprise that we're seeing a lot of interesting applications that are thinking about AI in really interesting ways. And there's one young man in our applicant pool, he's a finalist this year, um, from India. Mm. And he has started a company or an organization that is using AI to digitize indigenous languages in India right? Because the concern is we're going to have all this content, but if you don't include indigenous languages, it is going to be as inequitable and as marginalizing as you can imagine. But his brilliant insight was it is an economic opportunity where he is hiring at Mm. more than living wages, indigenous folks to do that work. It's brilliant. And you're just like, oh my gosh, you're amazing young man. It's just incredible. And it makes you excited about it. Like, let's not run away from it. Yes. Let's embrace it. Yes. And, you know, I hitch my wagon to these next generation and thinkers because that's the way I learn and enter these spaces yes. through these folks who are so thoughtful and interesting. So I, when I read that, I was like, I think we're going to be okay. Mm. Like, I, you got some folks who are not shying away from it, but who are leaning all the way in. And in the way that a lot of black and brown folks jumped into crypto, And it's rocky times in crypto, but the promise of democratization and equity um, and ownership of your creative assets, like black and brown folks, proximate folks saw that. So I think whatever we can do, Tulane, again, as intermediaries, let's help them innovate. Let's help them own the space. That's what we could do to stand alongside them, to stand behind them as they're pushing the envelope on these sorts of really interesting innovations. Mm, that's an incredible example. I was, folks can't see me, but I was like, you know, mouth agape, you know, <laughs> just at the, it's a, it's a, what, what, <laughs> you know? I mean, talk about radical imagination, right? right? I mean, right. that's what a, a free mind can conceive of. Yes. Absolutely. That is powerful. Yes, it's it? powerful. So, okay, I got a couple more questions. Matt Anderson on LinkedIn has said, I've heard you both talk about proximity as powerful technology for change. I'd love to hear you dive into some examples of proximity as a process for innovation and how leaders can become more proximate in a way that is relational and reciprocal and mutual rather than exploitative or transactional. So basically, you just gave an example, like the proximity of that leader enabled them to innovate in ways that are beneficial, generative, adaptive, futuristic, all of those things. Would you offer an additional example, anything else that's coming to your mind? So I just, I said, I just got off a plane from San Francisco. I was at uh, a bridge band board meeting. I'm actually mm-hmm. co-chair of the bridge band uh, board. The bridge band group is a nonprofit that consults and advises philanthropists and social impact organizations. It's a really important and central organization in the social impact space mm-hmm. has been on its own equity journey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was reviewing the board materials and they were uh, they had included sort of the racial equity dashboard yes. of, of their efforts. And they included and reminded me of their definition 
of justice in Tulane. I just, I was floored by it. And and I'm going to read it to you because I'm still processing it because Mm. it captured for me sort of why sometimes it has always been hard for me to wrap my mind around, like, how do you explain justice, right? Mm. And what the Bridge Band folks said is that it is a continuous practice in which all members of society evaluate and involve their norms, their laws, and institutions to ensure all people have access to resources and opportunities to define and achieve their liberation Mm -hmm. while living in balance with one another and the planet. Like that floored me. That has kept me up the last couple of nights because Mm. it is ongoing and spiritual and deep. Yes. And the notion of practice um, and engagement and lifelong commitment, that felt important to me. Yes. And I think there's, you know, folks who who are, are proximate our lives are a practice, a study in a practice in patience, in forgiveness, in hope, in struggle. Yeah. But even allies, right? What does your practice need to look like? And I just think there's something about um, you're never there. It reminds yeah. us that it is a journey, that that's it's right. a destination, but that's the work of it all. So yes. you're going to give the example, but this notion of a practice mm. felt spiritual and, um, you know, sanctified in a way that really spoke to me over the last couple of days, you know? Yeah, that is so profound. And I think I want to bring up another question that you spoke to, but I think I want to connect some dots. So Maura Wolf, my good friend, Maura Wolf, said, for the rest of us out here who are supporting young social entrepreneurs in local communities and in colleges, you know, what's been game changing? Remind us of an element that we should never forget. Like, what do you think after being in this game, Cheryl, and seeing what you've seen, you know, what's something that is critical for those of us who are in local communities working with young people to never forget as we support them, mentor them and amplify their ideas? Mm, mm. I mean, look, I just think that and again, I think this is a practice. Mm -hmm. I think we relegate and judge and marginalize young people every day. Mm-hmm. We don't like the way their pants hang. We don't like what their hair, what their hair looks like. We don't like the music that they're listening to. Mm. Um, we don't like the way they're on the dance floor, dancing too close, doing this. And we've got to stop that, yeah. right? Yeah. They're creating their world and we've got to guide them, but we've got to also support them yeah. because they're, they are in dialogue with us and they are important participants in this work. Mm-hmm. And if we ever forget that, we are doomed. We are doomed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yes. you just, you know, you've got to see them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So continue to see young people and to not let your reactions like language, right? Like that's the place where I can sometimes get distracted if I'm not mindful. You know, uh, there's lots of bombs that get dropped just as a course of communication. And if I get sort of, you know, caught up in my judgment, you know, (laughs) and clutch my pearls about the language, you know, then it's really easy to create distance. Um, So less pearl clutching and more listening uh, is essential. You know, that's really key. There's a group of, um, I think somebody must have most recently moved into the building like uh, behind me. So on the other side of the wall from the uh, office space I'm in now, it is not uncommon that a group of about mm, maybe nine young folks will come together and congregate right outside my window, uh, outside my study. And, you know, it has been a fascinating opportunity for me to pay some real attention to what I'm really about, right? Like it really has because, you know, I'll be in a meeting, you know, and you don't know, they'll they'll say what they say, right? And, you know, there's the the pearl clutching. There's the, okay, well, uh, am I going to go out and build relationship with these young people? That's what I say I'm about, right? And what I got to reflect on, Cheryl, is this is simply a group of young people in community enjoying friendships. That's right. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. wonderful. Yes. They're safe. Mm -hmm. They're joyful. They're connected. Yeah. They're not isolated. We're not right. seeing the the signs of depression and isolation that we say we're so worried about and fighting against. Like, this is what it looks like That's for right. a group of beautiful young people to come together in community on their terms in their way. That's and right. so what does it mean for me to embrace that and see that as opposed to impose 
my, you know, OG, (laughs) you know, standards around language. So I think I'm grateful. I'm grateful to the universe. I'm grateful that I have this opportunity on an almost daily basis, Cheryl, to make sure that I am walking my talk. (laughs) It's your practice, Tulane. And I appreciate you for it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll keep you posted on how it goes. So listen, This has been such a delight um, and no surprise. Uh, I want to make sure if there's anything else, Cheryl, that was on your mind that you didn't get to speak to, that we held some space for you to do that. Uh, Is there a call to action or some information that you want the listeners to hear that we didn't touch on? Mm. Well, first, I want to thank you, Tulane. I, I see you and I so appreciate your leadership. And I love you as a leader and fellow traveler in this space and to feel that there is someone in this space that I know has my back yes. in the way, you know, that I have yours, right? And, yes. just, and that that means, it, it, seem, it means so much. And to see someone who looks like me in this space, traveling and navigating these waters uh, means more to me than you'll, you'll ever know. We spend a lot of time sort of diffusing between nonprofit leaders and philanthropy, But we've got to ask our colleagues and our friends and our partners in philanthropy to truly move beyond the rhetoric and get serious about this work Mm -hmm. because it is not philanthropists who are going to fix this. It is not intermediaries that are going to fix this. It is proximate leaders who put their minds and their bodies on the lines in communities every day. Mm -hmm. They are the pathway to justice and fulsome communities, thriving communities, and we've got to give them the resources that they need to do it. And we've just got to stop the way we've been working. And and it's it really is now or never. Yes. We can't get with the economic disparity argument or racial injustice, you know, climate crisis, which is all tied up in gender inequity and racial inequity and justice issues. This all is incredibly serious. And it is not preordained that we're going to be okay. We've got to Mm. make it okay. And it's our work to do together. And I agree with you. We have all the tools and the smarts and the heart that we need to do it. Mm -hmm. We just just have to do it. We got to do it. We got to do it. We got to do it, Tulane. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Say More with Tulane Montgomery so you don't miss out on new episodes. Please also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Say More with Tulane Montgomery is produced by New Profit and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at New Profit, visit newprofit.org. Thank you so much for joining, and I'll catch you all in the next episode.